I'm going to invite you that you would open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Philippians chapter 2. And the reason why we share what we are grateful for is because it really cultivates an attitude of joy. When we think about everything that we have in Christ Jesus, it allows us to cultivate a true attitude of joy. And we began a few months ago this book of Philippians now and looking at what Paul is writing to this church in Philippi. And he's already mentioned that he loves them, that he has a genuine concern for this church that he ministered to as he's writing to the church. As we closed last week, the first chapter, we saw that he exhorted them, he commanded them, he encouraged them that they would live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. He said, you should walk in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ to live for Christ alone. Now, this is important because he's speaking of spiritual growth or spiritual maturity in the church. This is what we desire, that we would grow in a relationship with Jesus Christ. So if you like taking notes, note this, Philippians chapter 1, he says, Christ first. Philippians chapter 2, his message is, others next. Christ first, Philippians 1, Philippians 2, others next. And he goes from being a soul winner in the first chapter to being a servant in the second chapter. He said that the things that happened to him actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel in the first chapter, but now he goes to an attitude of a servant to the body of Christ in the second chapter. Now in the first chapter, he speaks of how circumstances can rob us of our joy. Many times those external circumstances, the conflicts, temptation, sin, the world, those things can rob us of our joy, things that oftentimes we have no control over. But in chapter 2, he speaks of how people can rob us of our joy. Now, we always, everybody here knows that person, and if they're walking down that hall, right, and you know they're a Christian, you say, well, how can I avoid this person because they just test my patience and my joy all the time? Now, if you don't know anyone that is like that in your life, maybe you're that person for everyone. <laughs> But he's saying here that you would learn to have an attitude that is willing to serve one another. Because the Philippians had a problem, and the biggest problem was not their external circumstances. That wasn't the problem in this church. The problem was the internal attitudes that were dividing and destroying the unity of the church. Now, what was coming now to hinder the unity, wasn't, it wasn't a doctrinal issue. It wasn't a statement of faith issue. It was the attitudes of the heart. So in chapter 2, he speaks of how can we as a church today cultivate unity in the house of God? How can we have unity? What attitudes make this possible? Now, the heart of the problem when it comes to unity, the heart of the problem when it comes to division is the problem of the heart. It's sin. It's selfishness at its core. That's why there's division. Oftentimes you see church splits, divisions. People can't get along with one another as believers. 
They can't serve with one another. There's constant strife, contention, arguments, griping. What happens? It has to do with the selfishness of the heart because oftentimes there's too much pride in the church, in the believer. Oh, there's the ego, a spirit of competition of who's in charge in the church or who's in control or who has the greater influence in the church. I want you to know this, that who's in charge, who has the control and who has the greater influence in the church, you know who it is? It's the Holy Spirit. It's not a person. It's the person of the Holy Spirit. Not one person is in control, in charge, or has the greater influence, but the Holy Spirit. So he's saying, do not let anything get in the way of unity. Don't let anything get in the way of the unity that you should have with other believers. No hindrances, nothing that is standing in the way. Ask yourself today, is there anything standing in the way between the unity of you and your brothers and sisters? Is there an opportunity today for reconciliation in your marriage, with your children, in the ministry, here at church? But because we're called to unity even in diversity. Now, what does that mean? That we're all different. We're all called to different gifts. But we are called to unity, and true spiritual unity comes from within. Would you remember that today? True spiritual unity comes from within. It is the matter of the heart. Uniformity comes from pressure from without, from the outside. And uniformity says everyone needs to look the same. Everything needs to be the same. But unity is a matter of the heart, that we are one. When Jesus prayed, before he went to the Garden of Gethsemane, before he went to the cross in John 17, he says, that they may be one as you, Father, are in me and I am in you. God's purpose and plan is that the church would be one, that there would be no fractions in the church, that there would be no cliques in the church, that there would be no divisions in the church. Know this, division and pride in the church grieve the Holy Spirit. It grieves the Holy Spirit in your life. And it reveals a spiritual problem in the church. When the church is divided, notice what's happening. There's a spiritual problem. And that is not solved by threats. That is not solved by rules. That's not solved by procedures or policies. That doesn't solve division. What solves division is that everyone's heart is right with God and right with one another. That you keep short accounts with God and one another. So what are we invited to do as we look at chapter 2? Protect the unity of the church. Be careful how you talk about the church. Be, be careful how you represent the church. Preserve the unity of the church. Two ways that you can do this. Number one, by love and by humility. You want to protect this church, Calvary Chapel of Downey? The church as a whole, the entire body of Christ, protect the unity of the church by love and by humility. Because love is the product of humility. And he's teaching us through a Christ-like, selfless, sacrificial love how we can walk together. How can we can truly be humble? It was Andrew Murray that said this when it comes to humility. The humble person is not one who thinks 
meanly of himself. He simply does not think of himself at all. Humility is that grace that when you know you have it, you've lost it. Just think about the truth of that humility. When you say, well, I'm such a humble person, you've lost humility at that moment. I heard of a person that wrote a book called Humility and How I Obtained It. I wonder how that turned out. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking not of yourself at all. That's true humility. So we're going to look at here at three things in only four verses. Number one, the motivation of unity. Why? And what are the incentives? What are the motivations for unity? The motivation for unity. Number two, the marks of unity. And number three, the means of unity. How can we arrive at a place where through unity we're glorifying God and the Spirit of God is moving through His church? By keeping our eyes on Jesus Christ. So would you stand with me this morning for the reading of God's Word, beginning there in Philippians chapter 2, verse 1. And I'll read the odd verses, you read the even verses out loud together. It says this, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship in the Spirit, if any affection and mercy... Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Lord, we ask that today we would have this attitude of love and humility that would promote unity in this church, in the entire body of Christ that we would honor you, that we would glorify you. Lord, help us die to our flesh. Help us die, Lord, to our selfishness, that we would deny ourselves so that we can pursue unity your way. Not our way, your way. In Jesus' name, and together we said, amen. You may be seated. We're going to look here first at the motivation for unity. And he uses this word in verse 1, therefore. Therefore, because we're called to live a life that is worthy of the gospel. Now, having given the exhortation that we should live a life where our conduct is consistent to our calling, because we're called to live a life that is holy, that it gives a blameless example when it comes to the gospel, that we're standing strong for the Lord against external conflict, against the world, the flesh, the devil, against temptation. Now he tells them how to act against internal conflict in the body of Christ. Now having known how you should behave in the world, now know how you should behave in the church. This is for the Christian in the church. These are characteristics, these are qualities that grow a healthy church. If you want to be a healthy church, then pay attention today. Because this is exactly what's going to grow us to be more like Christ. And he says this word, if there's any consolation in Christ. Now I want you to circle those two words in Christ because that is where unity begins, in Christ Jesus. 
And when he says that word if, he's saying since. Since or because these things are true. And he's going to give us a list here, which is the basis for Paul's exhortation for humility, love, and unity among Christians. In fact, he's saying since these things are true or because we have these things in common. Now, notice what he's saying, because we have this in common. This is the incentive that we receive these graces from God. Now, we are to show them to other people. We have been blessed. Now, we need to be a blessing. That you would not only just be a receiver, but today you would be a giver. That we would be a giver of these things. And you notice, since this is true, because there is consolation in Christ Jesus. That word consolation means encouragement. You can note that. It comes from that Greek word parakletos, which is also used to describe the comforter or the counselor, the Holy Spirit. And what that word means is, is truly someone that comes alongside to help, to exhort, to make one strong. It's speaking of being united in Christ Jesus. Because we have been made strong when we were united in Christ Jesus, because in Jesus you have received encouragement. This should provoke unity in the church because all of us here collectively have been encouraged by God. We have been strengthened in Christ Jesus. In fact, in 2 Thessalonians 2.16, Paul tells the church of Thessalonica, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God the Father who has loved us and given himself as an everlasting consolation, an encouragement that never ends, and good hope by grace, comfort your heart. Comfort your heart and establish you in every good word and work. We have all received the strength, the help, the encouragement in Christ Jesus, so we should as well display encouragement for others in Christ Jesus. You remember that faithful companion that Paul had in his missionary journeys. His name was Barnabas. Barnabas means son of encouragement, reminding us that it's so important that as we have received encouragement in Christ, we should also advocate and now encourage other people. But notice, not, this is not the only reason as to why we should be united. It also says, any comfort of love, if any comfort of love, which speaks of that same original word of the comforter, of the Holy Spirit, to come alongside and help. Here he speaks of making one strong or making one courageous or making one brave. Any comfort of what love? How have we be, have been made strong or courageous? By the love of God. And he speaks here of, if you have been comforted, made strong by God's gentle love. He speaks of a gentle love in our lives that makes us strong. This is the stimulating force that we've received, the love of God that makes us strong, that he deals with us with gentleness. In fact, the comfort of love portrays Christ coming to you close and very personal and comforting us in tenderness. How many of us can be grateful because God deals with us 
with gentleness and in tenderness. Amen. That's how he deals with us. That God loves even the unlovely. We love oftentimes only those that are easy to love. But God loves all people. He loves without partiality. He's demonstrated his love towards us. And we have been comforted in that love of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 3, Paul told the church that was struggling with this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort. You have been comforted by the God of all comforts. In 1 John 4, verse 7, the Apostle John says this, Beloved, let us love one another, for God is love. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And he who does not love does not know God, for God is love. If you say you know God, then you know that he is a loving God. And those that have been loved by God should be loving people. We should love one another because we've received the love of God, the comfort of love. I always think it's so interesting when you tell someone, another believer, hey, I love you. And the response is, likewise. What do you mean likewise? If we as believers, as Christians, tell one another, I love you, you know what the appropriate response in Christ is? I love you too. <laughs> we should be demonstrating the love of Christ to one another. And he says, if you've experienced any type of comfort of love, you know what this makes you, the comfort of God's love? Being comforted in his love, it should make you grateful, not prideful. Grateful, not prideful. You see how all of these things are motivations for unity? That he's encouraged you, that he's comforted you in his love. But notice the third reason, any fellowship of the spirit, that you've been united together in the spirit of God. The word fellowship means koinonia. It means partnership. Because all of us have been united. We're sharing these things in common by the spirit. There are things that we share where we are united by the spirit. What are those things? We have received the conviction of the Holy Spirit. We've been transformed by the Holy Spirit. We've experienced a regeneration by the Holy Spirit. We've been empowered by the Holy Spirit as he's provided now his spirit within us. And now when his spirit is within us, what happens? His spirit works through us, the fruits of the spirit. The fruit of the spirit is love. And what else? Joy and peace and patience. And if we're truly walking by the spirit in the fellowship of the Spirit, if we're submitted by the Spirit, and the Spirit is working the same in all of us, then we should walk as we are walking together in the Spirit. Now, what does the Bible say about the same work of the Spirit in all of us? We shouldn't be divided. We shouldn't be carnal, fleshy, divided, strife, because we are want our personal preferences or agendas. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, when he's talking about the diversity of the church, notice what Paul says, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greek, it doesn't matter what's your cultural heritage. You have been united and baptized into the same spirit. You belong to the same family now. Whether you were slaves or whether you were free, it doesn't matter your background. All have been made to drink of the same spirits. We share in the same communion 
of the Holy Spirit. We are called to be united by Him. Verse, that's the third reason. But notice the fourth motivation for unity. It says here, if any affection and mercy. If any affection and mercy. That's the fourth reason. Because you have received affection and mercy from God. Because God has extended His deep affection. Because God has extended His compassion to every believer. Because you've experienced, you personally, His tender love. Because you've experienced His forgiveness for yourself. All of us here equally have experienced God's love. All of us here have experienced His forgiveness. We've experienced the compassion of God in our lives. So we should be kind to one another. What we have received, we should freely give. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32, it says, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. Have a soft heart that's willing to love. Forgive one another. Don't be divided. Even as God in Christ forgave you. Sometimes we say, well, Lord, I think I'm deserving of your forgiveness, but don't forgive that other person over there. They don't deserve it. Each and every one of us are deserving of the forgiveness of God. So we should be very careful that we don't hold things against one another. And there was a problem here that he's going to mention later on in chapter 4, that there was, a, there was a problem in the church. So he's saying if there's a problem between you and someone else, you need to deal with it. You need to make things right. You need to keep short accounts with God and with one another. Colossians 3.12, he tells the church this. Therefore, as the elect of God, holy, beloved, set apart, loved, church, put on. This is what we should wear as Christians. Tender mercies. That you'd be willing to forgive. Kindness. That you'd be willing to serve in humility, meekness, and long-suffering. Be patient with one another. If you truly want to preserve the unity of the church, notice what you will do. You will be patient. Patient with your brother and sister. So he says, because you've received these things, because you received encouragement, because you received love, because you belong to the same Holy Spirit, because also here it says, that you have received affection and forgiveness and compassion from God, now you have the responsibility to walk in unity based off of these motives. Based off what Christ has done in your life. Notice verse 2, he says, fulfill my joy by being like-minded. He said, let me abound in joy, please. Paul here, he's demonstrating his pastoral heart, and he says, make my joy complete. Fill my cup with joy, let my cup overflow with joy, he's saying here. And his personal request that he speaks of here is tied to the concern of the unity of the believers. You know what he's saying? I will be complete when it comes to joy when I see the church united. That's why in Psalms it says, oh, how beautiful and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in what? In unity. You can enjoy that fellowship. And he says this, fulfill my joy by being, number one, like-minded. Like-minded, circle that in your Bible, that you would think the same way. That you would have the same mind. That you would not be divided in your mind. That you would agree wholeheartedly. 
that you'd be undivided in your mind. In fact, what he's saying to the Philippians, in regards to what they thought, and in regards to what they sought, it should be the same thing. Now, we agree in the supremacy of Christ Jesus. We agree in the statement of faith of doctrine together, the centrality of the cross of Jesus Christ, of our faith, of our doctrine with one another. But he's saying, let it be something that you are truly like-minded, that it's not a false unity. You know what a false unity looks like? You comply, but you don't cooperate. I'm doing this forcefully. I'm not doing this because this is what I want to do. Being like-minded, saying we want the same thing. Remind yourself, if you want to be united, cultivate a mind that says we want the same thing. When you have like-minded people, especially in the church, serving in the ministry, you know what you're able to do? You're able to serve the Lord with joy. You're able to serve the Lord with unity. The Spirit of God is able to flow with no hindrances, with no interruptions. With no interruptions. So what is he saying when he says, be like-minded? Notice, this is what he says, get along with each other. Would you get along with each other? In 1 Peter 3.8, Peter tells the church, finally, you be of one mind, have the same mind. Want the same thing. Have compassion for one another. Love as brothers. Be tenderhearted. Be courteous. Did you know that when you're like-minded, you begin to think of others before you think of yourself? You begin to think of what is the goal instead of what you personally prefer. And this is why he starts with being like-minded. In Romans 5, 15 verse 5, Paul tells the church of Rome, now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another. That you would not be divided in your mind. That you would say, we are standing together. We want the same thing. We desire the same thing. And it says, and with one mind, you would glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, receive one another, just as also Christ has received us to the glory of God. When you're like-minded, guess what you're able to do? Receive one another. Receive from one another. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 11, he tells the church this, Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Be mature. Don't be immature. The reason why there's a lot of divisions in the church is because of personal immaturities. Where people want attention. Or they're, they're not like-minded. If you're not like-minded, how can you walk together? So he's saying, be of one mind, be of peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the saints greet you. He said, I want you to be so like-minded that you're tender-hearted. In fact, when you see one another, you're going to greet one another in, in a way that's so graceful, loving, with a holy, pure kiss. That was a cultural thing. So guys, don't try this after service. Going around trying to kiss people. But to be like-minded, notice what happens when you're like-minded. You also have the same love. Notice that verse. The same love. Love one another. It speaks to that word agape, the love of the will. When you're like-minded, you love everyone without partiality. It's not a love of preference. It's not a love of attraction when you say, well, I love some people more than I love others. It's that you love everyone the same. 
And believers are to love everyone in the body of Christ equally, showing the same, circle the word same, sacrificial loving service that has been shown to us by Christ. In fact, love without partiality. When you're like-minded, you start to love without partiality. Romans 12, 9, what does it say? Let love be without hypocrisy. Don't say that you love someone, that you support someone, that you're standing with someone, then you turn around and you speak bad about the person. Or that you say that you love someone, but truly you don't have their best interests in mind. You don't truly love them when they're not around. In fact, this is, hey, what is evil? Cling to what is good. Hold on to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another in brotherly love, giving preference to one another. Prefer other people before or above the preference that you have for yourself. That's what it means to have the same love. In fact, John said it this way, if you truly know God and have the love of God, you should not only love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, love in action. That's what it means, 1 John 3, 17. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? You see someone that's in need? And you say you know God and you love God and you have the goods to be able to serve that person and share with that person, but you don't, how do you say the love of God is in your hearts? My little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth, in reality. In reality. So be like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and one mind. Being of one accord and one mind. How does that look like? It says that you are united in spirit. That word one accord means one souled. That there is one soul. It describes people who are together in harmony. Isn't that amazing that it describes it? It, it? it says, it describes one accord. It describes people that have the same desires. They have the same passions. That we have the same ambition in the body of Christ. That there's no hatred, no jealousy, no envy, no competition. There, there's none of those things because we're one soul. We're working together with one mind, with one intent, with one purpose and goal. What is the goal in the body of Christ as we work together? The glory of God. Know that if you have another goal, and you have the goal of glory of self, that's called self-ambition. And he's saying that with one accord and one mind, we would serve and walk together. Now, this is incredible. Notice how he says being like-minded, speaking of the mind, having the same love, speaking of the heart, and being of one accord, speaking of the soul. So when it comes to the mind, the heart, and the soul, that we would be united. You know what he's saying here? That you would love one another, that you would honor one another, that you would appreciate one another. These are the characteristics of a church that is growing healthy in Christ Jesus, knowing what we've received from him and our responsibility on how we ought to serve one another. So he's saying strive for absolute unity in mind, heart, and soul, and in purpose in the Lord, and bury your disagreements. Today, would you, would you stop when it comes to your disagreement? Would you be willing to let it go? Willing to deny yourself, to die to your flesh, to die, die to that desire that's getting in the way? 
Maybe it's your pride or selfishness, or maybe you need to forgive someone today to reconcile the unity. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, notice what here Paul tells the church of Ephesus. I therefore, prisoner of the Lord, I beseech you to walk worthy of the calling by which you were called with all lowliness, with humility, walk in humility, gentleness, with long-suffering, patience. This is what he speaks of. Bearing with one another. What does it mean to bear with one another? To put up with one another. (laughs) You want to have unity? Then you have to put up with one another's faults, weaknesses, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We should endeavor. That means to study, to apply yourself, to pursue, to strive, that as much as is on your behalf in power, that you would strive for the unity of the church. This is the motivation of unity. But notice the marks of unity, because as he describes it in verse 3, the marks of unity, he begins with telling us what is the cause of division. You know what the cause of division is? Selfishness. Selfishness, that is the cause of division at its core. And he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. Another word for selfish ambition is the word strife. You know what strife does in the church? It pulls other people down. That's what strife does. And it refers to rivalry. Where you have enemies in the church, where you're competing with one another, where you're motivated by pride. That's selfish ambition. You're motivated by pride. In fact, strife made it to the list in Galatians chapter 5, which speaks of the works of the flesh. Selfish ambition is a work of the flesh. We have to die to our desires. We have to die to our flesh if we want to pursue unity in the body of Christ. Because pride, because strife prompts you, it makes you want to push people to pursue your own way and it drives you with a competitive spirit. That's what, that's what selfish ambition is. In fact, we should not do things out of selfish ambition. We should do things out of love. Out of love, not selfish ambition. Not to do things out, out of what is going to be self-serving for you. What is going to serve you or how it's going to promote you. Or your agenda. Or pull people down to make yourself look good. That is the most prideful thing that you can do. It's so sad when you see people speak of others in a negative way. You know where that comes from? From a prideful heart. From a prideful heart. When you're saying, how can it make me look good? Or you have an ulterior motive. That's selfish ambition. Or what benefits you. So he's saying, let nothing be done with the motivation of you thinking of yourself always. Or you criticizing other people. Or complaining about one another. You know what he's saying here in verse 3? That we should pursue unity more than we pursue our personal preferences. Would you you take note of that this morning? That you are called to pursue unity more than you should pursue your personal preferences. And the reason why that's so important is because it's much easier for us that we think that the problem with the unity of the church, is someone else always. We never think it's ourselves. We always think, well, yeah, there's a problem with unity because of them. Ask yourself, am I the problem as to why there is not unity? Am I concerned more about myself than about other people? 
Am I striving with a selfish agenda that benefits me, that promotes myself? And he says, let nothing be done through selfish ambition. What benefits yourself or conceit? That's vainglory. If strife pulls people down, you know what vainglory does? What vanity does? It puts yourself up. That's what conceit does. You start thinking of yourself, excessive self-interest. You think better than what you really are, that you think of yourself more than what you really are. You become into yourself. That's what conceit is. You start to think, oh, look how good I am. Look how important I am. And you know what it comes from? From your ego. And conceit or vainglory, you know what another word for it is? Empty glory. Empty glory. And the pursuit of personal glory is motivated by the pursuit of selfish ambition. That you think in and of yourself that you have a self-serving purpose as to why you want to be first. There has never been a more spiritually empty characteristic than when you see glory for yourself. You know what it shows when you want to see glory for yourself? That you're spiritually empty. And people that are conceited, you know what they want to do? They want to impress other people always. They want the validation of man. They, they, they want the applause of man. And, and you know what this does when you want to be seen, when you want to be recognized? It kills unity because you're a self-promoter. Don't be a self-promoter. It kills the unity of the church. In fact, what is true love? Love does not promote itself. We all have read that famous chapter, 1 Corinthians 13. What does it say? Love suffers long. Love is kind. Love does not envy. Love does not parade itself. It's not puffed up. It does not behave rudely. It doesn't seek its own. It's not provoked. It thinks no evil. Love is truly sacrificial and selfless. Today we do something for someone. We love someone. What do we do? We want to let everyone know how we love them, right? We do a certain good. What do we do quickly? We take out our phone. We post it. We want people to know how loving we are. Or begin to remind someone how much you love them. No, he says here the, the true test, the measure of true holiness in your life. You want to know if you truly are growing in holiness? It, it is revealed by how much humility is being produced in your life. If you want to know if you're truly growing in the area of holiness, then ask yourself how much humility is being produced in my life. Because holiness, you know what it looks like? It looks like humility. So he said the cause for division is selfishness. It's you thinking of yourself. But the cure for division, notice what it is. It's selflessness. It's being humble. So he says this, but in lowliness of mind. That is the contrast. Humility is the only way of unity. Lowliness of mind. What is he saying, he's saying here? Is how you think of yourself. In fact, lowliness of mind is contrary to the attitude of the world. It, it, it is not the attractive thing to be lowly of mind or to be humble. In fact, in this, the culture of that day, it was known as a weakness to think of yourself last. Today, it's known as a weakness to think of yourself last. We want to think of ourselves first. But lowliness of mind, he's saying don't overestimate your own value. <laughs> don't overestimate yourself. 
Lowliness of mind, he's saying here, I want you to think like a slave. A slave was lowly. A slave knew that he ate last. A slave knew that he was there to serve. He didn't think of himself. That is opposite of the world's thinking. Notice what he's saying. That is counterculture to everything that we're taught today. You know what we're taught? We're taught how to think of ourselves very well. We're taught to love ourselves. We're we're taught to, uh, in regards to self-development or self-help. Or what about this? The selfie. Everybody knows about that. In fact, they've made it very easy for you that if you take a picture of yourself, your phone will build its own category so you don't have to go looking of all the pictures that you took of yourself. We're taught to think of ourselves. But he's saying, don't think of yourself. Don't be trained to think of yourself. In fact, think of yourself only as a servant. Now, I want you to know something. If you're not willing to humble yourself, no matter where you are or no matter where you go, you'll always be a problem. If you're not willing to humble yourself, no matter where you are or where you go, you'll always be a problem. A servant of God yields himself and uses what he has and who he is for the glory of God and for the good of others. His eyes are turned away from himself and his eyes are turned now to the needs of other people. That's why we should be marked by humility. Why Pride is very destructive to the unity of the church. If everybody's walking around in pride, you know what it does? It's a divided church. In Psalm 16, verse 18, the psalmist said, pride goes before destruction. And an haughty spirit, an arrogant spirit before the fall, you're setting yourself up for failure in arrogance. It's better to be humble in spirit with the lowly than to divide, to divide the spoil with the proud. Not only that, God's word tells us that he gives grace to the humble. What does he say? He resists the proud, but what does he do? He gives grace to the humble. God gives grace to those that humble themselves before him. So he says, humble yourself before the mighty hand of God, and he will exalt you in due time. But God's word also tells us that we would be honest about ourselves, that we would not think of ourselves highly. In Romans 12, 3, after having said that we or to live a life as a living sacrifice. He says, For I say through the grace given to me, to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Don't think of yourself more highly. Don't think of yourself better than what you really are. Be honest and have an attitude of a servant. It says, be sober, but soberly. Think of yourself so simply. Be simple. Be simple. I grew up in ministry with those two things. Be simple, be humble, and stay in the word. And God will use your life. As God dealt with each one of you a measure of faith. And notice at the end of verse 3, what does he say? Lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Be considerate of others. And think of them better than yourself. Since you're thinking of yourself as a servant, put others first and don't be so self-absorbed. Don't be so concerned about yourself. There's so much vanity in this world that thinks about self. Correctly assess yourself. And when you do that, when you have lowliness of mind, notice what's going to begin. You're going to begin to value others and the needs of other people. 
And it builds unity when you think of other people. When you think, you know what, I'm going to esteem others better than myself, that they are more important and their needs are more important than mine. Do you see how that glorifies God? In fact, as a husband, think about this. Your wife is more important than you. Her needs are more important than yours, as as even the wives towards the husband. That your husband's needs are more important than yours. As parents, thinking about your children, their needs are more important than yours. That's esteeming others better than yourselves. In ministry serving, the needs of other people are more important than your needs. What would happen if we started to prefer each other's needs instead of our own? We would truly see the unity that it speaks of in the Bible. Because as he speaks of joy throughout this epistle, notice there can be no joy in the Christian life for those that put themselves above other people. You'll never experience joy if you put yourself first. You'll always find the joy in the fact that you're serving other people sacrificially. That in humility, you have a concern for the advancement of others. That means that you esteem others, that you are concerned with others growing. That you have a, a, not a bossy or a pushy attitude. What does it mean that you're quiet, that you're godly, unassuming, servant, always seeking for the good of other people? You're not seeking as to how you can work your way and advance yourself, how you can promote yourself, how you can grow for yourself. Notice the only way to esteem others better than yourself is by having a submissive mind. You're submitted. I'm submitted, I'm humbled. Notice what it says in Galatians 5, 13. For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. Do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another. What are we called to do? To serve one another in love. Not to try to fight our way forward. In Ephesians 5, 21, it says, Submit to one another in the fear of God. We are to submit to one another in the fear of God. So we saw the motivation of unity, the marks of unity, but notice verse 4, the means of unity. And he says here in verse 4, let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Each of us have a personal responsibility. We are personally responsible for the unity of the church. I want you to know that today. You are responsible for the unity of this church. You have a personal responsibility so that we can continue to walk together as a church that is walking, serving one another. And he says this, not only look out for your own interests. That word look means to scope out. Don't only look out, don't only look ahead at your own interests, what you want or what you prefer. Oh, don't only give attention to your needs, give attention to the needs of other people. And you can't do this if you're preoccupied with self. But he says, but also the interests of other people. What what should we do? Seek to promote the interests of other people. Now, there's so many times that we say we only will do what we are interested in. (laughs) Or we will only do what's easy for ourselves. What's beneficial for ourselves. What is most convenient for me. It's either my way or the highway. This is not what he's talking about. In fact, he's saying be interested in what other people want to do. 
what other people like. It's not only about what you like. What do other people like? What are they, what are they interested in? <laughs> do you know what other people are interested in? That's what love is. Love is interested in the interests of other people. Would you know that? Love is interested in the interests of other people. Now I want to give you three things that love is when it comes to esteeming others better than yourself. Number one, love is available. You really want to esteem others better than yourself, then make yourself available to them. Then also be willing after you're available. There's a lot of people say, you know, I'm available. I'm just not willing. What good is it then to be available? It does you no good to be available if you're not willing. Love is available. It's, it's, it's now making yourself available to serve other people, then being willing, and then finally, number three, being sacrificial. I'm willing, but I'm also willing to be sacrificial in how I love people. Love is available, it's willing, it's sacrificial. It doesn't think of its own interests. It thinks of the interest of others first and your interest last. Do you see how you are directly responsible for the unity of the church? That we shouldn't think of I first? That's your ego. Every time you say I, it's the ego again. I mean, we love that pronoun I. We like to say I every single time. Somehow work our way into the conversation with I, right? Think about how many times you say the word I in one day. In fact, I want to challenge you not to say the word I for the rest of the day. Some of you will say, I can't. <laughs> think about how can you think of the needs of other people. Where instead of saying I, you begin to say, how do you feel about this? Or how can I serve you, if you're going to use that word? What are your needs? What are your interests? It's always so convicting when you hear your own wife talk to you about this issue, right? Husbands, how come you never ask me what I want to do, right? My wife asked me that recently. <laughs> because we're so interested oftentimes what we want. It's not about what you want, always. Don't think of your interests first. Think of the interests of other people. Don't promote yourself. Don't be a self-promoter. Don't try to build a name for yourself. Don't try to get a following after you. So you see so many pastors that think it's about them, and you know what happens? They divide the church. So many people that think that it's about them, what do they do? They divide the church. Have an honest self-examination of what Paul is calling for right here that leads to true humility. And notice, when you have this, there is joy in serving one another. When you protect the unity of the church, there's joy. And this is an example of walking and being, becoming more like Christ Jesus to live the way that he lived. He, he gave the example to his disciples that you are not going to live the way of the world, lording over people or wanting to flex power or authority over people. What did he say? It shall not be so among you. The way that they behave, you should not behave that way in the church. Not among the Christians. In fact, he says, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your what? Your servant. You want to be great? Then be a servant. You want to be first? Then be the slave. Be the one that eats last. Be the one that serves all the people. This is the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Have the attitude, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve other people. 
I'm a servant. You see, for many of us today, unity, you know what it looks like? It looks like reconciliation. Today, unity, maybe in your life, looks like reconciliation. It really looks like confession, and it looks like forgiveness. Because so many times, you know what the flesh wants? The flesh wants to get even. The flesh wants to defend itself. The flesh wants justice. But what are we brought to in God's word? In 1 John chapter 1, verse 7, it says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, if we walk in holiness, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. I want to tell you, there is nothing stronger in your past. There is no wrong that someone has committed against you. There is no fault in the church that is stronger than the blood of Jesus Christ. Nothing is stronger than the blood of Jesus Christ. That's why we should go to the cross every single day to pursue the unity in the body of Christ. That's where it begins, at the cross of Calvary, where you die to yourself, you die to your flesh. And you say, Lord, because you have forgiven me, I'm gonna forgive others. Lord, because I have been united to you at the cross, therefore I can be united to one another. It says, in the blood of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all of our sins. If we say we have no sin, if you think the problem is not with me, notice what he says, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. The truth is not in us, but if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Know this, every problem in the body of Christ is solved at Calvary. Every single problem. Every answer is at the cross of Jesus Christ where you know grace and when you experience forgiveness. Can we pray?